Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, as well as Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Before, uh, as we uh, come to uh, pastoral prayer before uh, the preaching of the word, a couple of uh, other things to be made aware of. I believe there is a slide coming. Our numbers have increased by uh, one more uh, this past week as uh, Louis and Natalie Marrera welcomed uh, a son into the world. I believe his name is Elias Salem. He should be right. There he is. Perfect timing. <clears throat> yep. So we rejoice uh, with, uh, with Natalie and, and Lewis, the safe arrival uh, for that uh, precious baby boy. Also, as we go to, so we, we'll be praying for the Marreras and, and uh, for God to continue to bless them. Also, we will pray for Pastor John as he leaves Tuesday for Scotland to uh, preach at a series of meetings at the Lockby Baptist Church. And he will return next Tuesday. So we want to send him out with a prayer and a blessing and then a greeting from our membership here to the, the good folks there in Scotland. So let's, uh, let's uh, unite our hearts in prayer, shall we? Our Father, we are very grateful for the, the privilege that we have uh, to approach you with boldness and in confidence. Uh, this access that we have to you in prayer that comes through the finished work of Christ who allows us to come before you and make petition and request and to, to praise you. We give you thanks, Father, for the safe arrival of Elias, for bringing Natalie through the delivery of this baby boy. And we pray that as um, they have welcomed, as Lewis and Natalie have welcomed Elias into their home, Father, that you would bless them as parents, that you would uh, fill them with not only the, the joy of welcoming this new life, but Father, the peace and assurance that uh, is necessary. All young parents, Lord, uh, are a bit anxious and nervous about how to handle this, this tiny life for which they are now responsible. So we pray that uh, you would uh, give them peace and assurance and surround them as you have already with family and, and members here from Maranatha to support and encourage them both with prayer and in physical means as well, Lord, to help them and to cheer them on and to build them up as parents, that they would draw their strength, not only from uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but the strength of the fellowship that is provided here. 
We pray for Pastor John as he prepares to travel to Scotland to fellowship, to worship, and to preach. We pray for his uh, protection, Father, as he travels. Uh, help him to arrive there and then arrive home safely. And while he is there, may your spirit uh, bless him and anoint him as he preaches. Let the fellowship that he enjoys be enriched by the, the presence of Christ and the, the power of your word. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to participate in the ministry of the open door, that we can, by using what you have given to us to encourage others to teach them, O oh Lord God, um, hospitality and uh, the ability to enter into the culture here by helping them learn English. We thank you for those that are already serving. We pray that there would be others raised up whose hearts would be opened by your spirit to participate in this important ministry. And then, Father, as we look uh, at this morning's text, hearing already that Jesus refers to all those who would follow him as salt and light, the command and commission that he gives us to go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, all things that he has commanded. Father, if we're honest, we would be humbled at such a mission and we would wonder who is sufficient for these things except those who are empowered by your Spirit to do so. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to fulfill the calling that you have placed upon us to be salt and light, to go and to make disciples, to baptize and to teach. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our fallibility. We acknowledge our imperfection. At the same time, we confess that our knowledge, our perfection, our ability, our power comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of your spirit in and through us, and by your good and gracious assurance and promises to us that as your son has told us, you are with us always, even to the end of the age and beyond. Father, speak to us now uh, through your word. Help us to understand and to apply it for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would be remiss if I, I didn't mention as well what a wonderful time we all, the men experienced this uh, Friday and Saturday at the men's retreat up at Solid Rock Day Camp. We were blessed not only by the fellowship, but by some very good and solid teaching by Pastor Keith Allen, who uh, opened our eyes to the uh, worth of treasuring God's word and storing it in our hearts as men that we might delve even more deeply into a reading of the scripture and a knowledge of the scripture and then that would then overflow uh, out of our lives into our, our families or in our workplace or even in our church as well. So also would like, so I want to thank all those who participated from our side. The, uh, we had Carson, we had Carlos, we had Jonathan Fung who led in worship, uh, Randy Gao and, and Ken Lee who helped organize and put all that together. Um, and so we're very, very grateful, and especially the men who were able to attend. Uh, it was wonderful getting to know um, some, of, some of the guys uh, better, and it was just a real privilege uh, to be there. Now, this morning, we are still in our series, uh, the sixth week of our series on life in the family of God. And we come to uh, that part of our covenant, which encourages us to engage in our own ministry. Uh, our covenant promise, which deals with participating in, the, in the, essentially in the mission of our church. 
And uh, so the texts that were read from Matthew, uh, both in Matthew 5 and Matthew 28, are designed to you know, explain and exposit that covenant promise, which we'll show you in just a moment. Um, when we think about the church, when we think about an effective church, a church like Maranatha, which is like other, any other church that is driven by the gospel and wants to uh, do whatever we can in obedience to the Great Commission to be a gospel-driven church, it would help to have some way of measuring our effectiveness as a gospel-driven church. And so some years ago, you may have been familiar with this book, you may have read this book, uh, The Gospel-Driven Church by Jared C. Wilson, uh, affectionately referred to as at Jared C. by those who know him. I don't, but uh, that's what he's referred to as. Anyway, in that book, he lists five metrics for measuring the effectiveness of a gospel-driven church. And they are simply a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. There should be a growing love and desire to know him and to proclaim him. There is a discernible spirit of repentance in a gospel-driven church, that there is a sincerity of wanting to actively practice uh, repentance on a daily basis, knowing that we have experienced the grace and mercy of God. There is a, a, a dogged devotion to God's word. Uh, and this is uh, the aim and the theme of this past weekend's retreat, that as we grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, we would also develop uh, a continuing hunger to know his word. Uh, as we learned in one of the sessions discussing uh, a verse in 2 Peter 3.18, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, both the experience of having been enfolded into the kingdom, into the church, as well as the, the solid, if you will, the objective side, the knowing. And so the more that we experience grace, the more we'll want to know him. The more we know him, the more we experience his grace. And that cycle becomes very energizing and life-giving. And then there is an interest in theology and doctrine. That, that's part of that growing in knowledge, knowing about the character of God, the, the word of God, the, the way that God works in the world through the church and how he works in the church to send us out as salt and light and to see that theology and doctrine are, are ways of helping us understand the character of God, the attributes of God, and that that is a, a good thing. And then there is an evident love for God and neighbor. Because it's one thing to know the truth, it's another thing to show the truth. And so as we delve in more deeply and drill down into knowing the truth of who God is and what his word says, that truth would then be expressed in a love, not only for him, but for our neighbor in very active ways. And so those metrics, I, when I, I list them because they, I think, serve as a, a good introduction uh, for this morning's message, which is really based on the covenant promise, you, you can show that, uh, that we'll seek to participate in the outreach of our church by sharing the gospel, caring for others, and supporting the advance of God's kingdom here and abroad. And so I, if you want to adapt that a little bit as I have and apply to a gospel-driven church, which is what we are, a church that is driven by the, the truth of God's word, then a gospel-driven gospel church is one where every member will seek to share the gospel, seek to care for others, and support the advance of God's kingdom here and abroad. Now, to honor this promise as members one to another, we then must continue 
uh, keeping in mind those five metrics, to honor this promise, we must continue growing in our love for Christ. Uh, we must continue to practice a daily repentance. We must continue to maintain a, a steadfast devotion to God's word, and, as well as cultivating an interest in theology and doctrine, and then demonstrating an evident love for God and neighbor. And that as a, a gospel-driven church, the, we work on the big idea of, of the, the message that as a gospel-driven church, we believe then the ministry and work of the local church is a responsibility to be shared among all the covenant members of the church. So it's not just those in leadership. It's not just the elders. It's just not the MKids teachers or directors. It's not just the deacons, not just those on hospitality, but those who form the entire membership. All of us together are committed to keeping this promise because it comes from the scriptures where Jesus indeed encourages and commands us to be those that would seek to participate in the work of the church uh, as witnesses into the world. And so as we break it down, this is what we're going to look at in terms of how we're going to take apart that covenant promise, that the ministry and work of the local church is made, first of all, visible through sharing the gospel. It then includes caring for others and then it's extended by supporting the advance of God's kingdom uh, here and abroad, which is one way you know, we're, we're seeing that with the participation in the open door ministry. That's here. That's a local ministry. And then abroad, as, as Pastor John will go to a church that we have partnered with and are supporting, as well as other churches and individuals who have gone from um, beyond these shores to other places to serve. So let's look at the, the first the first thing on the list, that the ministry and work of the local church is made visible through sharing the gospel. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of interweave Matthew 5 and Matthew 28. So rather than going back and forth between the two, we'll use Matthew 5, 13 to 16 as the launch point, and then I'll weave in uh, 18 to 20. The idea of being salt and light uh, and then sharing the gospel. Anyone who's ever been through the, the membership process at Maranatha knows that when, uh, whenever the uh, elders interview a candidate uh, for membership, there is one question that we will always ask during that interview process. There are others, you know, there's testimony, how did they come to know Jesus, what church did they attend, if they attended before they came here. But there's one question that we're always sure to ask. And the question is this. Can you tell us in your own words what is the gospel? And that sounds like a very straightforward question. And when we ask that question, we get a, the, the, the candidate that we're talking to gets this, this immediate look of both almost dismay and panic. It's, it's kind of the same thing, the, the same look I see on the faces of premarital uh, engagement couples when I ask them, so why do you want to get married? And they just sort of then they're sort of mixed between embarrassment and anxiety. And, and now we don't ask that question to create anxiety or to embarrass. We, we ask that question because how well a candidate answers that question helps us understand as elders if they have been attending for any length of time and helps us understand how well we have instructed them. How well have we discipled them in understanding what is the nature and character of the gospel? as well as if they have come to Maranatha from another church, it helps us understand how well have they been discipled in that 
knowledge of the gospel because we asked a question so that, based on this, that if you can explain the gospel, then you can share it. If you know how and what the gospel says and applies, then you have a, a greater degree of confidence in sharing it. And that any, any definition of the gospel must include the fact that without Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and that it, the only way that we can be saved is through the grace of God who gives us the faith to trust in Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is certainly how the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says, Christ died for our sins according, in, uh, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scripture. Then he offers another explanation of the gospel in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, he says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And so we, we want people to understand that the gospel is based on the fact that we were sinners, we were transgressors, we were dead in that, spiritually dead, and God made us alive. And what makes the gospel then, the gospel, the, the good news, is that it declares to us and to all who would listen to it, the forgiveness of sins and that salvation itself depend entirely on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That our positive response to the gospel is a result of the work of the Spirit who opens our heart to receive and then to respond to that message. And so when we ask a candidate to, in their own words, define for us the gospel, what we're wanting to do is encourage them to learn from them have we discipled you well enough so that you know what the gospel is? When you are uh, interviewing for a job, right? Uh, I remember when our youngest son was in uh, school and they, one of the things they wanted to teach him was the elevator speech, right? You get on an elevator with a prospective employer and you have the, from the moment you get on the elevator to the moment they get off to tell them about yourself and why they should hire you. Well, I don't want to compare necessarily sharing the gospel to that moment, but you should be able to, in a very condensed form, share what the gospel is. It's almost like, you know, sin bad, God good, <laughs> Jesus the way to become good, something like that. But you be able to be able to share it in a way that, that's confident. We tend at that moment to lean upon our testimony, right? How we came to know Christ. And as much as I would want it to, my testimony is not the gospel. If anything, my testimony is evidence of the gospel. It's how the gospel can change and transform. Think about it. Read Paul's letters. And the only time Paul ever or expresses or shares anything about how he came to know Christ, he's embarrassed by it. He actually tells the Corinthians, I don't want to talk about that. You've driven me to that moment. I'd rather tell you about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And how the power of that moment, how the power of that event changes everything. So when we share the gospel, we want to point people to Jesus. And to lay out before them the power of who Jesus is, what he said, his words and his actions together. 
And at that moment, say, well, this is how what Jesus did impacted me. This is how it changed me. That's sharing the gospel. And a lot of times that just takes relationship as well. We're not necessarily talking about cold calling here. I remember as a young Christian being absolutely terrified. There was a, a guy who uh, came to our campus. He was one of the, uh, one of the uh, he, was a, he, was, he was in the army fort on Staten Island. He was part of the navigators. And he was just gung-ho for sharing the gospel. And I was like two or three weeks old in the Lord. And he just sort of wanted to drag me by the hand. We're going to go knocking on dorm room doors just asking, hey, do you know Jesus Christ? And I remember... I was terrified of, of doing that. And that's one way to share the gospel. But the more effective way, I think, to share the gospel is through relationship. Know your neighbor. Spend time with them. Extend hospitality to them. Weave into your conversation naturally the power and effectiveness of, of Christ and how important he is to you. Pray before your meal. Pray in public before your meal. The waiter or the waitstaff wait while they... They don't know what to do when you pray, right? For your, they're sort of, they're, they're either waiting politely or they're like, is something wrong with the food? Not now. Right? I prayed for it. Jesus refers to his disciples. He refers to us as salt and light. The power of the gospel is why he refers to us as salt and light. We are not salt and light in and of ourselves. Our ability to be salt and light comes through the word, through Christ, through the power and effectiveness of his spirit. You've probably heard countless sermons, if you have spent any time in church as a believer, countless sermons on being salt and light. So I won't belabor the point except to say that you know, if you've heard these sermons, that salt had many uses in the Bible, particularly in the time that Jesus lived. We know that it was used to flavor food. We know that it was used even to tenderize food. It was used in religious ceremonies as well. It was used in the making of contracts. Salt was so valuable in the ancient world, it was actually used as payment for services rendered to the Roman soldiers. Salt is where we get our term salary, because Roman soldiers would be paid in salt. And so it, it had that kind of connotation. It would also have medicinal purposes. Salt would be used to prevent, uh, prevent um, infections in, in minor cuts, right? Anybody, you've heard the expression, you're pouring salt into a wound? Now you know why. It hurts like iodine, but it's there as a preventative, as something to help you get better. We look at this text, you know, being salt, and the predominant use or application is that salt here is, is referred to preserving a morally decaying and morally rotten world. That's why we're sent out into it. Now, at the same time, understand that when we talk about sharing the gospel, we talk about being salt, our mission is not to save the world. Somebody's already taken care of that, far more effectively than you and I ever could. So our mission is not to save the world. Our mission is to point the world to the Savior. Our mission is, if you will, to prevent the moral erosion and the societal decay that's eating away at our culture by simply practicing what Jesus tells us to do in his word. One way to do this is, if you're a parent, is to raise children 
who will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that implies that you yourself as a parent are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was part of the very strong exhortation we men received this past weekend. That we would treasure God's word. Because as we treasure God's word, we begin to treasure the Savior. And as we begin to treasure the Savior, we begin to treasure the mission that the Savior gives to us. So if you're a parent, one way that you can be salt is to train up your children to know who Jesus is and to practice what Jesus says. If you're a child, at whatever age you're at, your way of being salt is by obeying your parents and listening to them. When you're at school, one way of being salt is pay attention to the kid that nobody sits next to. The kid that is decidedly different from everybody else and everybody avoids. I was that kid. And I appreciated it when people sat next to me and reached out to me and made me feel less weird and less awkward. Be a good student. Be a respectful student. If you're a person who is unmarried, your way of being salt is by maintaining your purity sexually and morally. By paying attention to the fact that in time, if it's God's will, you will find that mate. He will bring that mate together. As a husband, your way of being salt is loving your wife the way Christ loves the church doing everything you can to nurture and to value your, and to treasure your wife. And for a wife, according to the scriptures, to respect her husband and to submit to him the way Paul says a church submits to Jesus. And then as a family, we, we are salt, and as individuals, we are salt in our communities by upholding these kinds of values. So there are these very practical ways that we can share the gospel. Find the words as well. That's why we stress knowing how to explain it in your own words, because I know everybody always says, you know, use words, but at times, you know, share the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. And I just cringe when I hear that. I understand actions speak more powerfully and loudly than words at times, but you still need words, right? Because Jesus did not pantomime the gospel, right? He didn't walk around saying, sounds like two words. He spoke. God didn't think the world into existence in Genesis 1. He said, let there be light. And then he went out and showed what that light looks like. I heard a, just a wonderful sermon this past week as I was driving up to the retreat uh, on Psalm 119 where, where the preacher talked about the, the text that is written and then the text became flesh. So God spoke his word and then he sent his word to speak more clearly. So you share the gospel. There are ways that you can do that creatively that allow us to communicate the truth and the power of his word to all neighbors, to our, to our neighbors and to our family. That we salt our community, if you will. Because the other thing that salt does, which is what I'm doing now because my mouth is dry, salt makes you thirsty. So there's a sense in which by salting our community, salting our family, salting our schools, salting our marriages with the gospel, we make people thirsty for Christ, who, by the way, also refers to himself as living water. So we drink more heartily as we increase our thirst and others' thirst for the gospel. So we salt our culture by making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that Jesus has already commanded us. I like how John Stott explains the, the power that, is, uh, that takes place when we are salt. This is in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Stott writes that God intends the most powerful of all restraints within a sinful society to be his own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. We are salt and light. We are making ourselves available to be God's means by which we can heal and restore the, the decay and the brokenness that exists in our world. But our effectiveness as salt, be aware, is not absolute. It's not permanent, if you will. This is why Jesus warns us not to lose our saltiness. Back then, in Jesus' day, the salt was not like it is now. It, I mean, there are huge salt mines in parts of this country. I mean, hundreds of feet below the surface. But back then, most of the salt would be gathered by the most logical place, which was the Dead Sea, because everything enters into the Dead Sea and nothing leaves. So the salt would be harvested along the shore. That also meant, I mean, you're digging up the salt from these marshes. So it was mixed in with a whole bunch of other vegetable matter and other minerals, one of which was gypsum. And if the gypsum was present in large enough quality, quantity, the salt over time would lose its effectiveness. It would lose its saltiness. There was also the case that sometimes the salt from the sea would, would sort of form a, a flake on the rocks around the Dead Sea. And as the heat of the morning sun rose, that salt would evaporate and lose its effectiveness. So Jesus is telling us that at the same time we are salt, we maintain our saltiness by staying close to the source of our saltiness. This is why, in a sense, we can live in the culture that we are in and part of, but not become part of it, so that our witness, so that our saltiness does not become diluted, so that we can, we can observe and, and maybe even uh, you know, just look at what's going on, but not necessarily partaking in it. So the idea of, of maintaining our saltiness depends, once again, on treasuring the Word, learning uh, to grow in, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus had strong words for those who lose their saltiness. It's good for nothing, he says, other than to be thrown out or trampled underfoot. You, know, you would then use, I mean, in our, up here in New Jersey in the wintertime, what else will we use salt for? Melting roads. You don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to be cast on to melt roads. You want to be able to melt hearts. And how's that one for a poetic? Uh, don't melt salt, melt hearts. Melt hearts with the word. Melt hearts with activity that is driven by the gospel. Don't lose your flavor but maintain your flavor by continually yourself, ourselves, thirsting after, hungering after righteousness in the image of Christ. So in order to um, remember, treasure the word, treasure the Savior. Treasure the Savior, treasure the mission. Treasure the mission, you treasure the one who sent you on it, and you treasure your neighbor. To continue to be salty, you keep on practicing everything that Jesus says we need to do. Remember, he says in John 14, if you keep my words, the fire and I will come, we will make our home with you. If you're not sure what God wants you to do, spend time in his word. Jesus says the spirit is given to help us understand the things that have been written, the things that he has taught us. We have a body, we have elders, we have other means of support of encouraging, learning, and knowing more about how to serve him. Be aware, too, that like salt poured into a wound, salt will bite. It's a very noble thing to be salt, but you have experienced, I'm sure, you try to share the gospel with someone who is not saved, and their initial response is, wow, I never realized that before. Thank you so much. I think I'd like to ask Jesus into my heart right now. More often than not, they, they, they push you away. So, well, 
Thanks for sharing. I have my truth, you have your truth. Let's call it square. Salt bites because it's the nature of salt to sting. If there's anyone who knew about offending with the truth in a good way, Jesus is certainly one example, but Martin Luther was another who was not afraid to speak boldly. Luther wrote this. He said, salting has to bite. If you want to preach the gospel and help people, you must be sharp and rub salt into their wounds, showing the reverse side of denouncing what is right. Jesus is salty like this. Read Matthew 23 and the stern things that he has to say to the Pharisees, to people like us who in our self-righteousness think we have it made. And because we have grown up in a church or because we have committed to church ministry or because we are studying the scriptures, somehow we are the elite. And Jesus talks to the elite in the sternest terms. He says, beware of that. Salt bites. But remember this, the pain that is caused by the gospel's salty bite is there by God's design so that it can just as quickly be healed by the soothing oil of God's grace. The truth is what hurts before it sets you free. The truth is what tells us we are sinners separated from God by virtue of our trespasses. But then that same truth that warns us and tells us of our condition says, here's the solution. Here is your Savior. Here is the one who has borne all of your griefs, your sorrows, your transgressions. And the chastisement that brings you peace has fallen upon him. We look at Jesus and see him smitten by God. But he was smitten for our afflictions. So that by his wounding, by his death, we are healed and made alive again. The bite of the gospel is there to show us the healing virtue of the gospel. So when you're salt, when you speak to your unsaved coworker, family member, or friend, and they look at you with that side eye, or they, they ignore you, understand that's the gospel impacting them with the truth of their true condition without Christ. And then you can follow up. But here's the solution to that. Does that offend you? Well, here is the solution to that offense, the gospel. Some of you uh, may have read, I mean, in terms of the pain and then the relief that comes from the gospel, if you've ever read, I think it's A Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. It's a story of a, of a, of a, a, a boy and a girl. The boy's name was Eustace Chubb. And I, I love how the, the book starts. It tells Eustace Chubb and he deserved it, right, that name. But Eustace, he, he, he stumbles upon a cave uh, in which there's all this treasure in gold. He realizes that it's a dragon's lair. Dragons love to, if, you know, Lord of the Rings, right? They love to accumulate gold and treasure. And he falls asleep with a gold bracelet on his wrist. And when he wakes up, lo and behold, he's a dragon. And that wrist, that, that gold band on his wrist is hurting him and is painful. And the only way that he can become an undragon, become a little boy again is if the hero of the story, Aslan, the lion, has to strip away the scaly armor that has built up around his skin. And Eustace describes that the pain that he experiences as the scales of armor are removed. But he says, but once it was removed, he felt a freedom and a liberation. The, the gospel is like that removing of the scales, as well as the joy and freedom and peace and healing that it brings. So that's being salt. 
But then Jesus tells us we're also light because whereas salt prevents decay, um, light chases away the darkness. If you want to look at it this way, think of being salt as the negative part of it and light being the positive part because it does emphasize the positive aspect of our mission. We show people the way out of the darkness by being light. Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world in John 8, 12. In John 1, 4, uh, the, the gospel writer describes Jesus this way, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Paul, in, in capturing what it means to follow Jesus as light, right? He has made us these things. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. How do we expose the unfruitful works of darkness? Jesus tells us, do good works. Forgive instead of retaliate. Your enemy hits you on one cheek, turn to him the other. They ask you to go one mile, go two. They ask for your cloak, give them your tunic. Feed them. Bless them when they curse you. Pray for them when they persecute you. That's how you expose the fruitful works of darkness. You love them when they are most unlovable. You shower them with the grace and mercy and loving kindness of God because at one time we were like them, alienated, without God, without hope in the world, angry, hurt, bitter, indifferent, uncaring, not a thought at all given to God. And if it was, it was not a good thought. And then here we come and we speak to them a word that bites but also promises hope and health and salvation. And we do them good. We are kind to them. If they're on our team, we don't hang them out to dry, but we stay with them. If they're wounded, we walk with them. We stay with them. We don't leave them. Others may leave them. That's their whole life story. That when going gets tough, they're left alone. But in our case, when the going gets tough, we stay with them. We're their emergency contact. We're the one who picks them up when they're too drunk or too stoned to get home. We're the one who covers for them when no one else will. Those are good works. We're the ones who forgive our children when they do stupid things. And they do stupid things because we did stupid things when we were their age. So we know. We pray for them, both in public and in secret. We forgive them both in public and in secret. We're like the prodigal father where we're waiting, sometimes with a heavy and pained heart, but we are trusting in a God who is good and gracious and who bring the prodigal home. That's being light. We're not like Job's wife who says, are you still trusting in him? Why don't you just curse him and die? And Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we not, shall we not receive evil from God's hand as well as good, trusting in his providence, trusting in his mercy, those are good works. We tend to think of these things as piling on, as a great and grand thing. I remember listening to a sermon some years ago about a, a, a preacher who said, I always thought that the grandest thing that God would ever de demand of me was if I was arrested in the middle of the night and placed on a firing wall and they said, renounce Christ or die. I thought that's the big sacrifice. I never realized it meant confessing my sin to my wife. I never thought it meant loving my neighbor as myself. I never thought it meant obeying my mom or my dad when I don't want to, when I don't like them. I never thought it meant being kind to that person who is always unkind to me. I always thought of writing the big check, but it's always the little checks that God wants us to write more often than not. Be able to write the little check. Do the thing that's the hardest thing to do. Forgive, to love, to be gracious, 
Salt bites, light exposes because unbelievers, and I would include ourselves in this as well, because sometimes we need a brother or a sister to be salt and light for us, to hold us accountable, to say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why would you do that? You need to change. Those things have to happen because we need to be reproved. We need to be reformed. We need to be redeemed by the truth. We do good works as the evidence of the power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit in our lives, and we use them to attract people to Jesus. I like how D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, a tremendously positive thing happens when we're salt and light. He says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. That is how revival comes. We live in a day and age when we seek to do the very opposite of that. Let's become more like the world so that we can become more attractive. And Jesus in the gospel said, no, be different. Stand outside culture by depending upon a word that is eternal. Because you are going to never be more relevant. You will never be more timely. You will never be more contemporary. You will never be more with your own culture than when you stand outside it by trusting in an eternal word. Because that's what eternity is going to be. It's what it is already. It's knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We talk about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as Peter says. You realize that's a continual thing. That's eternity. We will spend eternity as we have begun now in time to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an adventure that is. What a joyous privilege it is to grow in that grace and to grow in that knowledge, to grow in the grace of giving, to grow in the grace of forgiving, to grow in the grace of self-sacrifice, to grow in the grace of humility, to grow in the grace of thinking others as more highly of ourselves, to grow in the knowledge of a God who did that for our sake, for his glory. It's a whole lot better than smoke and mirrors. Oh, I've got more to say, but the time is... (laughs) Let me just end with this. One of my favorite movies... I think because my, my dad liked it, and he would whistle this tune all the time. Have you ever watched the, the movie The Bridge Over the River Kwai? It's, it's, it's based on a true story from World War II. There was these English prisoners, uh, and American prisoners as well, who were captured by the Japanese, and they were made to build this bridge over the River Kwai so the Japanese could uh, move their transport by train. The, the, the prison itself where they were kept was right in the middle of the Burma jungle, now I think Myanmar. There were no fences around the prison camp because the jungle itself was the thing that would keep the prisoners there. And if you know the prisoner's code, whether whatever war you're in, the prisoner's code is if you're captured by the enemy, you are duty-bound to escape. That is what you must do. But there's a conversation that takes place between an American prisoner, um, played by William Holden, I think, and then the, the British colonel, who was played by Alec Guinness, does a wonderful job. And they have this, this conversation where Holden's character tells uh, Alec Guinness we're going to escape. And Nicholson, Guinness's character, responds like this. And, you know, I'm not going to do the British accent, but you can imagine a high British accent. Of course, he says, it's, it's normally the duty of a captured soldier to attempt escape. But my men and I are involved in a curious legal point of which you are unaware. In Singapore, we were ordered to surrender by command headquarters. Ordered, mind you. Therefore, in our case, escape might well be an infraction of military law. Holden's character responds, <coughs> I'm sorry, sir, um... I didn't quite follow you. You mean you intend to uphold the letter of the law 
in this place, no matter what it costs? Commander Nicholson responds, without law, Commander. There is no civilization. But that's just my point, says Commander Sears. Here, there is no civilization. And then Nicholson responds by saying, then we have the opportunity to introduce it. We live in a world that claims to be civilized. And Jesus commands us to be salt and light so that we might bring civilization to it, that we might bring to it the one who has ordered all things for his glory and for the salvation of the world. Be salt and light. Engage in ministry for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, and for the good of our neighbor. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this wonderful and glorious and difficult and life-changing mission to which you have called us. It is a mission that has been accomplished for us by your Son, a mission for which your Spirit has equipped us with all things necessary for godliness. So help us, O Father, by your power to be salt and light, to go, to make disciples, to baptize, to instruct. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.